Hello to you all, it's Molly here. Welcome to this week's episode of In Fairness Inquire, Roscommon Artists, a special series of our podcast which is dedicated to interviewing astounding creative artists that are based here at home in Roscommon. In these interviews, we're going to be talking to actors, theatre makers, drama facilitators, comedians, writers, directors, poets, producers, a dancer and a weaver. We're going to be discussing how they started in their profession, obstacles they have faced along the way, how they've been impacted by the pandemic, the importance of creativity in their lives, their influences, how they stay motivated to keep creating, and most importantly, how you, the listener, can support their work. We want to make audiences all around the world aware of the constant stream of Roscommon-based creative work, and we also hope this series might encourage some of you to support local art, recognise its necessity, and maybe even pursue some creative endeavours of your own. This series comes to you thanks to the generous support of Roscommon County Council, who have kindly commissioned this series and endorsed us with the necessary equipment and software to record the interviews safely and remotely during the summer of 2021. This week, Sharon Mannion is joining us for a chat. Sharon is an actor, comedian, writer and facilitator of stand-up workshops from Roscommon, now based in Dublin, and works frequently with Dublin Comedy Improv Group. She started out in Inchicore, where she trained in acting, and soon discovered stand-up upon graduating, where she started doing open mic gigs in the International Bar in Dublin. Sharon generously talks us through her journey into the performance life and the empowerment of her role as the comic. Improvisation is the way to Sharon's heart and we discuss that fatal moment of getting stuck and how to push past it. Sharon trained in improvisation in Chicago and describes the role it plays in her performance career, both for staying fresh for performances and for writing material. We discuss gender imbalance in the comedy scene, as well as other difficulties of sustaining a career in the arts, including transferring to online comedy nights with Dublin Improv Group at the beginning of the pandemic, bringing joy and laughter to the actors' lives and to those all around the world. She also answered our questions on her incredible one-woman show, The Curse of the Button Accordion, a hilarious autobiographical piece recounting her time growing up in Roscommon and her journey to becoming the incredible and fierce woman you hear from today. Sharon recounted how she got the idea from page to stage, including the collaboration of having her own writing directed by someone else, Sharon has written for RTE, Blasts from the Past, a historical sketch show and a short radio play touching on pandemic-related themes. This interview is a great listen for anyone who wants to get into stand-up, comedy, improv and acting, as Sharon gives great advice about starting out, trusting your creative instincts and collaborating with others to network and find your creative troupe. Please enjoy the chat and we'll catch you at the end for a few updates on the series and how you can keep up with Sharon. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of In Fairness Inquire, Roscommon Artists. Today we are joined by Sharon Mannion. How are things, Sharon? Hi, guys. Hello. How are you today? I'm Grant. I'm, it's a very hot day today, so I am very hot, red and sweaty. That's good. That's the vibe. Delightful, <laughs> along with all the rest of the population of the country at the moment. It's roasting. Yeah. Um, so, Sharon, to kick things off, how would you describe the creative work that you do? Whew, oh, my God. That's uh, <laughs> quite the doozy to start with. I don't know is probably the honest, uh, shorter answer. The longer answer is a little bit of everything I suppose most of my work these days is in comedy the vast majority of my work these days is in comedy um I do a lot of writing these days I I write a lot uh for radio and well and for tv yeah so I kind of do a hybrid of everything so in terms of how I would describe it I mean oh I don't know (laughs) is that terrible that I don't even know what I do um but comedy I mean for a long time I resisted well, back in the early days, I kind of resisted the uh, comedy thing um, because I thought I was, I don't know, I thought I was something else or I was trying to be something else or something. But I've long let that go. And, and now, um, yeah, it's comedy. It's comedy in all forms, really. So if I was to describe it in one word, I would say comedy. 
Brilliant. Cool. So you're a Roscommon woman mm-hmm. and you're based in Dublin now? Yep, that's right, yeah. So how did you go from Castlery to Dublin? Where where did the journey begin? When did you know what you wanted to do and what were those first steps to getting where you are now? Yeah, okay. So I I kind of knew what I wanted fairly early on in that I thought I want I knew I wanted to be an actor. Uh, so like really kind of for as long as I can remember. I mean, definitely when I was younger, I do remember having some kind of notions of hairdressing or different things, but really the acting thing was kind of was kind of it. Like I, I think I filled out a CAO form, but really like, I think I put down marine biology as my first choice. Like it was just like, you know, it was, it was nothing. It was nothing to me. So I knew I was going, I had all, I think I'd already got a place in acting college at that point. So um, I knew I was going there. Um, so I went to an acting course in Inchicore in Dublin and I did that for three years. And sort of, I mean, the acting college is kind of a bit of a bubble, like, you know, because you're just, uh, you're getting parts and everything because (laughs) you're in the class. (laughs) And, you know, uh, that was, it was amazing. But obviously then the real kind of journey begins after college when uh, you're out in the big bad world and you realize, okay, it's actually quite difficult to make a sustainable career out of this so yeah definitely uh but that was it I never really looked back in that sense I mean I look back all the time and go what the hell am I doing even now but but I never uh I guess I went to college I went to acting college at 17 and that was it really yeah cool and so you started out in acting college and was there any moment or event that caused you to diverge into comedy um it was after college so uh, in college I always got cast in the kind of comedy roles or the quirky roles but I was like not happy about that (laughs) at all you know and I thought I was Juliet you know so uh I wasn't I do remember we did as you like it the Shakespeare as you like it in second year or something and there was me and two other girls were kind of best pals and they got cast as Rosalind and Celia, the two uh, leads in As You Like It. And I got the part of Phoebe, which is a great role, I, I realise now. But at the t- but she comes in in like the later acts and she has some, a couple of really funny scenes, but it's a, you know, small and inverted commas role and it's a quirky kind of funny role. So now, obviously, that's the type of role I, I adore. But then I was like, oh, this is, you know, a disaster and this is awful and I'm never going to be anything, blah, blah, blah. But even th- so that sticks out in my mind as a moment, not necessarily where I diverged into comedy, but just a moment where I thought like this is <laughs> this isn't looking so good, you know. Uh, but after college, the moment was when I started doing improv. I started doing improv in the Haypenny Inn which is a pub on the keys and they had this improv night on a Thursday and I had loved improv just from seeing it on the telly I'd never seen a live show or anything and I'd never even seen the Haypenny actually um I'd mean I'd meant to go and had never gone but anyway long story short they held auditions that I ended up going through or whatever and got in and that was the absolute turning point because all of a sudden I was surrounded by like-minded people I was you know, doing comedy on a weekly basis and loving it and feeling the joy in it as opposed to feeling like people are laughing at me or something was the kind of weird notion I used to have in my head. So, yeah, and I was just surrounded by comedy. Like, the Haypenny at that time had stand-up a couple of nights a week and improv and it was just, yeah, it was amazing. So uh, that was it. That was was definitely the, the turning point into comedy for sure. I liked that because I liked what you said there because me I went to acting training college and Misha did acting classes in film school and we're both on the other side of that now and Mm. we're realizing now like you do have to do there's so much more figuring out after college about what kind of actor you want to be because sometimes you know you can't fit into every role and you the only way to discover that is through all the rejections for sure and also you know, like you throw in simply having to try and earn a living like in that mix so like it's lovely to think that uh you're figuring out what kind of actor you want to be but sometimes you simply don't have a choice because mm. y- you know you get you, ha- you get cast in whatever it is you get cast in and you take the gig because you have to pay your rent or whatever you know so yeah, yeah it's 
pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. Just before you joined the chat, I was just chatting to Misha, being yeah. like, "This is so hard." We're both all acting. Yeah. Oh, it's so. And how long are you guys finished out of that then? A year. I'm just about oh, a year now. Yes. We finished last so. year. We finished in the middle of the pandemic, mm. like. Oh yeah. Where did you go to acting college? I went to acting in DIT in Rathmines. Oh, very good. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Misha went I to Trinity. She did Trinity, film in Trinity. Yeah. Ah, lovely. Yeah. I mean, a yeah. year. I mean, a year after. What was I doing a year after? I don't know. I was just like lost. A <laughs> lost yeah. sheep. Like, it's so hard. Those early. Like, I remember when we were finishing up college, there was a, a profit share uh, production of, I think it was Stags and Hens. You know, the Willie Russell play was... Mm was casting and we all kind of went for it because there's loads of roles in that there's loads of female roles there's loads of male roles so we kind of all went for it and one of my best friends actually she's still one of my best friends she doesn't do acting anymore but she she got cast well she she was getting callbacks and stuff and I think a couple of other people maybe got callbacks anyway she got cast and none of the rest of us did and I remember at the time feeling like oh that's it then she's an actor and we're not you know like that that that's kind of okay that's that <laughs> that's that decided then she's she's going to have a career and the rest of us won't which of course is you know so absolutely not how it works at all like it's just she's not doing acting now and in, in fact she probably left the industry i'd say that was probably the last thing she did you know so it's just like it's a marathon not a sprint and it's such a dangerous thing to get into that headspace of like you know who's doing what and oh they've got something and you know it's horrible it's human nature mm. to a certain extent but it's so counterproductive like because mm. you just don't know what way it's going to go you know oh sure comparison is the thief of joy yes absolutely for sure <laughs> put it on and, a yeah <laughs> so go bringing it back to stand-up for a second um mm. i love stand-up and i think it's amazing mm. and anytime because, you know, I'm at that point in my life where it's like, what kind of performer am I? I want to try mm -hmm. out all this different stuff. And then I think, oh, like stand up. And I'm always met with, oh, it's so, it's terrifying. It's the scariest form of performance art. Mm -hmm. And that might be true in a sense. But how do you handle those nerves, if any? <sighs> okay. I mean, I think I would say that it, having done sort of a good cross section of everything, you know, and I've done uh, shows where I sing and I've done shows where I uh, uh, you know have long monologues and I've done a one-woman show and I've done a good enough cross-section to know that I would agree that stand-up is the, the scariest in a lot of ways but it's also the most empowering and the most kind of it's the most rewarding in a lot of ways now that's not necessarily to say that I want would want to do stand-up only you know and would want to just do that forever but God, it is so, like, I would imagine it's a little bit like jumping out of a plane or something in that that's something I would just never do. Uh, but when people talk about that kind of experience, that's something that's so exhilarating, I suppose, maybe. Uh, so how do I handle the nerves? Like, I think it's, you just get better at handling the nerves. Like, the very first gig I ever did was in Kilkenny. And I remember the day of the gig particular I mean I was nervous for weeks beforehand but the day of the gig I remember like speed walking around Kilkenny just trying to burn off this whatever this was you know this kind of adrenaline and I ba I mean I basically speed walked up onto the stage like it was just it was crazy you know but then when you do it like oh it feels so good you know especially that first gig it just feels so good uh, then as you go on it's again it's that thing it's a marathon not a sprint because every every gig is not like the first and with the nerves thing I think you just literally get better at compartmentalizing in that when I started doing stand-up first I might be nervous if I had a gig on Friday I'd be nervous all week then I would get better that I'd maybe only start getting nervous on the Wednesday then I might get certain nervous on the day then just beforehand and now I would kind of be able to sort of squash that down to just sort of a couple of minutes before I go on you know that kind of way yeah. so um I think you just get better you get better and once you have a few really awful gigs like awful gigs where you die a death and you realize you haven't actually died like you're still <laughs> you still have a pulse you kind of go yeah all right you know 
and you feel i think when you when you have terrible gigs that's when the old like when you're starting out and you have your first kind of terrible gig the more established comedians the older comedians re, that's when they really go you're one of us now you know so that's kind of there's a sort of a comfort there yeah but it's um but if you have the itch to do it sorry i'm probably waffling on for way too long that's here exactly but what if I you want. have yeah. the Just itch to do it at all you have to do it like you yeah. have to do it you just have to do it okay and how do you how do you come up with your material do you like are you one of these stand-ups who likes to lean into the tension whether it's something whether it's something topical at the time or if it's you know picking out two people in the crowd and you know are used together or something like that. <laughs> probably only do that when i'm tired i'm like oh let's go for an easy <laughs> an easy laugh here uh no i don't know if i lean into the tension i just try and um it's interesting i think at different points in your career as a stand-up and this is say isolating stand-up particularly not necessarily other things that i do but your your role sort of or the perception that people have of you kind of changes and sort of your i feel like my viewpoint has always been the same and my sort of material has always kind of been in or around the same but it's amazing what happens as you get older and now i'm like i'm 39 now and i have two kids and i'm married and stuff and now i'm often and like women old women of that age are short are in short supply and stand up mm-hmm. women generally it's changing but women in of that age certainly and mothers like you just you know you don't get many on the stand up circuit because it's not really conducive to that world so suddenly i find myself um with a with a totally unique i suppose viewpoint because most of the people that are on stage are maybe in their 20s or you know they're talking about being single or they're talking about you know whatever out drinking and things that like you know i'm come i i can't do anymore <laughs> because <laughs> that's what happens when you get old you're not able uh so yeah i i can't even remember what you asked me there but in terms of yeah material i i, I just talk about me really and and talk about my life and my existence and at some points in I, th- i think i talk about sort of uh what it's like to yeah i talk about myself i think and what it's like to be me and what happens is over time that becomes yeah that becomes a unique perspective because there's not many 39 year old uh parents female parents doing stand up if that kind of makes sense yeah no it does and that's really interesting what like what do you why do you think that there is that imbalance there in stand up particularly in gender but also particularly in like ages as well yeah do you know like why is that imbalance there and it's it's interesting as well what you said about being an inchicore and not feeling like and feeling like the the quirkier roles were almost like a failure because mm. i think and i'm guilty of this as well when women go into acting i think sometimes we think this is my chance to show how beautiful i am and how romantic mm. i am and then you're challenged with these roles that's like no this is more about your wit and intelligence so what do you have to say there about gender imbalance in stand up oh here how long do you have <laughs> uh, <laughs> i mean well women aren't funny that's the first thing you see <laughs> so uh look i think it's changing for sure like i mean definitely that definitely when i started i think i did my first stand up gig in 2005 i think or something around that so that's jesus christ that's nearly 20 years ago now but anyway uh definitely at that point i mean there was literally a handful of of females doing stand up for a start and definitely there was also still this kind of thing where you walk when you walked on stage you could feel it like you could just feel that kind of like okay oh she's probably going to be shit you know you could you could oh yeah you could absolutely feel that like now it was only there in the sort of air and you know truthfully speaking i never minded that too much because i sort of felt like it gave me something to battle against and also what would happen would be if they did like you they would they did tend to kind of reward you tenfold because they'd kind of be like oh you were funny and you're a woman like wow like you know they were so <laughs> impressed 
and you would always get these compliments of like I don't normally like female comedians like which is just like so not if you think that's a compliment it's not a compliment uh, or you know that that kind of thing so I definitely think that has absolutely changed. There's way more females doing comedy now. A hundred, like, it has absolutely, I, there's still issues there, don't get me wrong. It hasn't been fixed or anything. But certainly in terms of the amount of women doing comedy, there's definitely more. Now, as regards to the age thing, I mean, I think in stand-up, a lot of it is simply, like, the stand-up life, if you're going to be a stand-up full-time or whatever, it's a very lonely existence and a very, it involves a lot of travel, um, you know you're you're gone all the time and even if you're just I mean you can't really be a full-time stand-up in Ireland you know there just isn't enough gigs so you either have to relocate to the UK or you have to travel a lot over to the UK and and like if you have kids and stuff if you're like okay obviously not everybody who's older has kids but if you're a lot of people do and if you have small kids like you being gone being out of the house every night of the week or traveling over to Glasgow to do weekends like it's just it's just not not feasible a lot of the time you know so I think that certainly plays into it um but that's not the only thing there's a lot of just still I think residual I don't want to say prejudice but kind of it's like it's it's all part of the wider conversations we're all having about sort of me too and all like they're all connected like for a long time women weren't and still arguably aren't making enough of the big decisions if you know what I mean so um yeah I think that it's it's the same as in every industry that women have sort of had to fight that bit harder to get ahead and hopefully it is changing I also think like there's maybe something in the female psyche and again I'm talking specifically about stand-up here but like the because I've taught comedy workshops say um, you know writing for stand-up and stuff and it's definitely something I've observed and I am speaking quite generally here but I definitely think um, average men will put themselves out there quicker than average women if that makes sense do you know what I mean so it's like of all the when I do comedy workshops like 90% of the women who turn up at the workshop are pretty good like you know this is the odd rubbish one or whatever but 90% of them you're like this one is probably quite good it's probably 50% of the men maybe you know or 40% maybe I don't know but it's just like average men and it's not a criticism I think it's great I think more average women should be you know doing it but I think women feel they need to be really good at something before they try it whereas I think men are feel more able to go I'm gonna try this and for us the chat for women i think the challenge is just try things if we're shit at them so what like you know so what does your comedy workshop and comedy writing workshop look like what kind of process do you bring the participants through i like to run it like a sort of a military <laughs> operation and break them down Class. um i'm kind of, i'm joking obviously but it's sort there's an element of that in that I find when people come in to, it's usually like a 10 week course or whatever, a couple hours a week. And I usually find that people come into it uh, with, a, I guess, a preconceived idea of, you know, what they're going to do or uh, how funny they are or whatever. Uh, and the first thing I really try and do over the first couple of weeks is just, you know, st stop people trying to be funny, you know, just don't try and be funny. Just... What you're trying to do is be yourself as opposed to be funny. And that can be harder for some people um, over others. Like, you know, some people I think find that quite welcoming and they're like, oh, great, you know, the pressure's off. But some people I think, yeah, if they've, if they've been told they're really funny and they're here because they think they're really funny and then it can be quite hard for them to sort of let that go and just stop trying. Because if you're coming in on week one and you're trying to be funny, like you don't need the course then. Just go and do a gig. Like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? And I don't mean that in a bad way, but just like, just go and do, like you you just go and do a gig then, you know? You don't need to do a course to do a, a stand-up gig. So if you're at the at the workshop, I think the first thing I try and do is, is just let people get rid of any of that. That usually takes a couple of weeks. Uh, sometimes three <laughs> and then it's just a kind of a, a gradual process whereby you're trying to just get people to come out of themselves a little bit and just find out who they are and try and help them probably the middle of the um, term is kind of like 
yeah trying to just get them to share about either themselves or their view on the world or whatever it is and just to be quite authentic about that and to help them sort of my role then is to sort of help them see how some of that is interesting to the rest of us you know and in you always try and encourage them to find something interesting first you know again the funny is like way down the line so yeah sort of first couple of weeks let go of any notions get comfortable you know talking and then you know try and get comfortable being your authentic self you know whatever that means to you it could mean it means different things to different people but just being authentic and then probably towards the end of it you're sort of showing them maybe more specific ways to kind of craft material or uh you're trying to you're trying to point them like because some people will come in and they might end up uh maybe their strength is in writing like one-liners or whatever whereas other people might have elaborate kind of stories and other people might end up doing a character or whatever it is so you're trying to just kind of make sure that they've found that organically as opposed to come in in week one like some people come in in week one and it's kind of, and they kind of are like well I like Jimmy Carr so I want to do you know one-liners like Jimmy Carr and it's kind of like well that might not be you you know so let's see who you are <laughs> and then you know they might end up doing uh they might end up being quite clownish or you know more storyteller or uh, they might they might you know some people kind of sort of on week four you discover they can play the ukulele and you're kind of like well bring it in you know what i mean just bring it in <laughs> what and they're like oh okay i didn't think that would be interesting it's like it is like anything that's you is interesting or like there was one girl who we didn't discover until week five that she worked in like I want to say a bomb factory, although that's not, that can't be right. But it was some kind of an ammunitions mm -hmm. factory or something. And we were like, are you serious? She was like, I didn't think that would be interesting. We're like, are you serious? That is so interesting. You need to tell us about the bomb factory. So yeah, that kind of thing. And do you, th so things like, you know, getting rid of your notions of what funny is and finding your authentic self, would you say those are the kind of things that make a good comedian or is there another level that you yourself your own personal opinion you think ah that's really good comedy and who give us some examples of people in comedy that you think yeah they're they're someone to look out for okay that's a really good question because i think both are true you know i think yeah. i think definitely in stand-up you have to be authentic i think i think the audience can smell it when you're not you know and that doesn't mean there isn't room to be like sort of uh, ironic or like play a character or be sort of tongue-in-cheek but i think it has to be there has to be a realism there it's that thing of like you have to acknowledge what's in the room it's like if you're watching a stand-up and um a glass breaks down the back it's like the stand-up has to acknowledge that has happened you know because if the stand-up ignores that that has happened it's like everybody in the room then is like are they not here with us or something there's a weird thing that um the, it's it's the same with like if somebody's having a bad gig like you kind of have to acknowledge that now, and i don't mean that thing where people go like oh this isn't going well or whatever because that that can actually be quite annoying to watch i think because as an audience member you're just like just you know keep going but by acknowledging it i mean i don't know it's kind of hard to put into words but whatever is happening in the room the stand-up i think has to be there in the room very clearly be there in the room if you're like when i started doing stand-up first because i had come at it as an actor for the first few months of my gigs i was kind of uh approaching it like a monologue like an acting monologue you know because that helped me kind of calm my nerves and that was fine i think that worked well for me to a point and i would i would all i would actually say that's a decent tip if somebody was coming to stand up and finding it quite nerve-wracking you know i was just like performing the role of stand-up uh but that'll only get you so far because at a certain point you have to it's not like theater where you're there is a fourth wall and you're creating this world that's kind of separate from the audience with stand-up like you are in the world with the audience like so you kind of have to you have to be real about that as regards to who's great i mean tommy tiernan was always my absolute um you know idol and it makes me laugh him. 
We're yes. we turning uh, stands here. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, like he's so good. And it makes me laugh now that like all the uh, older generation are like he's brilliant on his Saturday night show uh, but they would be the ones kind of given out about him 20 years ago when he was on the late late <laughs> um that makes me laugh so he would be for me he would be the benchmark I think you know um in terms of and I guess a lot of it is personal personal um choice or whatever as regards to like I I can't name anybody else not because I don't like anybody else uh but that I don't know I think it's more I don't know what I'm trying to say but I think I just enjoy I could enjoy anybody on a given night if that makes sense I kind of I quite like going to like oh maybe not open mics but smaller clubs that you may not even know who they are like so I wouldn't even know their name a lot of the time. I remember seeing a great guy in Manchester once. I can't even remember who he was, but I loved him, you know. I've, only, I've never seen him since, but... Uh, so I'd kind of be more like that, I think. Uh, like, I think stand-up stand has kind of gone a bit, like... Do you know, there's a lot of stand-up on TV now, which which I don't think has, has necessarily helped the art of it you know and it's no disrespect to the people who are on tv doing it but it's just a different i feel like it doesn't land as effectively or something no you know, when it you're doesn't actually in the audience and there's people erupting in laughter around yeah you, and you have a drink in hand like it's bliss i agree and like i think a lot of people are consuming stand-up now on tv and they think that that's what stand-up is and it's like oh you should really try and go to a club like and see some stand-up from people that you don't know that you've never seen before and see what you like and there'll be three or four acts on and some of them you'll think are total rubbish and some of them you'll think are the best thing ever and and everything in between and that that to me is the joy of stand-up like do you know what I mean that that kind of I'd be much more into that seeing 20 minutes from a few different people than I would be going to see uh somebody really well known for an hour and a half you know unless it's and they yeah exactly and they never they wouldn't put bad stand-up on the television as well so do you think it's important to go to these clubs and theatres and maybe see stand-up that doesn't really land as effectively as what you'd see on the television? Do you think that's important? Uh, yeah, well, I suppose I wouldn't necessarily say that people need... To, but more different styles. like not So not necessarily that you need to see stand-up that doesn't land, but certainly that you need to see all sort of styles. Like, there's so much out there, like, whether it's... You know, like on TV, you get a lot of the observational stuff and just kind of, which is, again, no disrespect to the, it's not the people who are doing it on TV. It's not their fault. You know, that's, that's kind of what TV is. It has to be that little bit more generic. Like it, that's, that's the model, you know? So if you're hired for that, that's what you have to do. Like, so it's nothing to do with them and they would be great also in the live stand-up environment you know where they would be a bit freer and stuff so it's but it's more like yeah to just see um to just see what's out there like there's so much weird and wacky stuff and sketch stuff and you know songs and there's everything you know so it's it's a little bit like uh it's just so, like the, the stand-up you see on tv is just such a small uh representation of of the stuff that's actually out there so that's all it's more it's more like people th like even when people come into the course I always ask them you know what kind of stand-up they like just for my own kind of curiosity and they inevitably always reel off um you know the ones the ones that are on tv kind of thing uh and a lot of that is because they just simply haven't seen anybody else it's not because they're the only ones that are good at stand-up or they're the only ones who this particular person that they have a style that enjoys like you know but uh yeah, they just haven't seen it. So if you go to club, well, not now, obviously, in the pandemic, but uh, if you go to, so again, some of the kind of smaller clubs, like any night of the week, like there's comedy in the international in Dublin seven nights a week. Like, so you're going to find something that you like for a tenor. Like, so um, I would encourage people to go, get out there, go and see it. And how did you get involved in Dublin Comedy Improv Group? So that was, so again, when I started doing improv with the Haypenny, the, at that point there was only I think there was only the Haypenny and the Dublin Comedy Improv so the Dublin Comedy Improv were working out of the International and the International is like the home of Irish comedy kind of thing so the Dublin Comedy Improv were like the group you know so um I always kind of were like oh I'd like to be in that group 
Uh, and then I was in another group called the Crack Pack. Then that was a group working out of um, Bankers Comedy Club. And then how did I end up joining Dublin Comedy Improv in the end? Like, um, I think we all ended up with the same agent or something like that. And there was it was just one of those kind of like, oh, sure, you do improv. Sure, do you want to come down kind of thing? And that was that was kind of it, really, you know. So, um, yeah, it's been running for like 30 years, I think, or something. Now, I was nine 30 years ago, so <laughs> I was not doing it then. <laughs> but um, it's great. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's such a... I love improv. Like, I really adore improv, I have to say. I could do improv all day, every day for the rest of my life and die happy kind of thing. Mm. Um, it's, it's definitely for me... And I spent a summer in Chicago, like, properly training with Second City and IO and things and places like that. And, like, oh, it was just... You know, it really opened my eye at that point that I went, which was 2010, I'd say. Again, there was there was more improv starting to happen in Dublin, but it was or in Ireland. It was still kind of, you know, just a few kind of small groups doing a specific kind of type of improv. But when I went to Chicago that time, I was like, just like, oh, my God, blown away by just everything that was going on over there. And now that is starting to come in to Ireland a little bit more. There's more groups doing longer form improv and different types of improv. And so it's great to see. But Chicago is definitely the the promised land, you know. Yeah. And you've been doing um, like Zoom nights with them. And that's mm. recorded and it's improvised and you get prompts from the audience who are in on the Zoom with you. How How are you finding that like in comparison to actually being in front of an audience? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't compare like in the same way. It's not the same, but like it really has been a lifesaver for us, particularly in the beginning when we were all slowly losing our minds. Uh, and we started doing it fairly early on in the pandemic. Like, I think we had our first gig, like maybe not at the end of March 2020, but but definitely early April. Um, so we just kind of, I think it was born out of a sort of a desperation of like, we need to, I mean, first we just were meeting to do some workshops and just kind of to meet and, you know, and of course, like it's a group full of uh, comedians. So like most of them would spend uh, like, I mean, Ian, for example, is in the improv, like on a, in a normal pre-COVID world, he spends like nine months out of the year out of Ireland, like he tours so much, you know, so like it was a real like obviously for the whole world it was you know a total of a total shift in like what is what is going on so initially we were just like let's just meet and just connect and then it was like oh let's just do some workshops and try some games and then it was just like oh sure let's just do a gig you know let's just kind of see how that goes so yeah we just started doing it and that was it we've been doing it since and now this week we were filming with pat short some improv bits and like we were all kind of saying we were filming in a theater now there was no audience except just the crew like but it was like glorious <laughs> to just be standing we were all like oh my god it's amazing to be standing up doing improv and there's people there <laughs> so yeah. like it, it the zoom stuff is is not is not the same at all but mm. it fills a gap and i think at this point with the gigs we kind of have regular people that log into us which has been lovely as well because you know it's just kind of now become this bunch of strangers that aren't strange like they're not strangers anymore there's a couple that zoom in from america every week and they're our pals now you know and it's just so weird <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like, <laughs> so it's been lovely and we've kind of said that you know, like obviously as more things open up the zoom thing is like people don't really want to be on zoom watching gigs but we've kind of, I think at this point we've kind of said we're just going to keep going now with it until we get back into the real world, which hopefully yeah. won't be too long. Honestly, brilliant. Fair play Lovely. to you. And like I sometimes when I think of improv, I kind of think like you're dipping into like a bowl in of creative. This is going to sound mad now, but bear yeah, with yeah. me. You, you almost dip into a bowl of creativity. And uh, the more you improv, the more you're emptying this bowl and you just get to a point where the bowl is empty. And you're just you have no nothing left to offer. Do you ever do you ever hit walls like that? And how do you overcome it? I think the beautiful thing for me about improv is that one of the first things it teaches you quite early on is exactly how to push through that moment. 
that's for me the best thing about improv and the biggest thing that improv has taught me a hundred percent because when you start doing improv i think yeah that does sound true what you're talking about there you sort of feel like you have this stuff and but then you do so many gigs or so many scenes or so many whatever and you know the bowl is empty you know and you learn pretty quickly in improv that um it's all about kind of like because because if you're doing improv emptying the bowl to use your analogy you're not really in the moment with your scene partner you know because you're you're in your head is what we would call it you're in your head too much and being in your head too much is the enemy of improv you have to just be it's the ultimate kind of mindfulness thing because you have to be in the moment you have to listen to what your scene partner says because if you don't listen to what your scene partner says you don't know what they've offered you so if you're kind of thinking which is a natural thing when you start improv to be thinking about you know kind of maybe the next thing you're going to say or how the scene might go or what i might do next but you ha- improv really teaches you to a hundred percent let go of that and so now like uh, like for me like i've you know i've done improv for years now and i'm so comfortable with it like uh t- the idea of being in my head now would be so uncomfortable to me it'd be so like it's like sometimes um like for me it's much harder to sometimes if you're on things different things or like if you're devising something or whatever people might say oh it's a scene about um a panda in a kitchen uh and it's his birthday and there is an earthquake and you're also eating a cheese sandwich go and i'm like i can't improvise with that because that's not improvising because now i have to get in my head and go okay i have to mention a tomato sandwich and i have to do you know what i mean so i think yeah improv uh, like that's that's the glorious thing about it is that it really teaches you how to push past that when you think you have nothing because i always again this does come up in the sometimes i teach improv courses as well but it comes up in the stand-up thing of like it's amazing how we all do like when you're starting out with it like sometimes I'll do this exercise where it's just it's just showing people kind of yes and and all you have to do is say one sentence and the scene partner yes ands it so it could be like I'm having a cup of coffee yes and you put milk in it like it's literally just one exchange and it's amazing people do a round or two of it you know and be grand because they have they're taken from the bowl and then they'll reach the point um where the bowl is empty and so somebody will go um it's raining outside and the scene partner will go I don't know what to say I've nothing I've nothing and like I always find that moment really interesting because if you met a person in any other context and they said it's raining outside you would have something to say like you would never go oh god I just don't know what to say to that I have no idea I have nothing you know you just wouldn't because you would listen and respond and that's what you're trying you're trying to get into that kind of headspace with improv that you're just it's really basic listen respond listen you can't be wrong like if somebody said you know if somebody walks into the room it's raining outside you don't go I don't want to say the wrong thing here I don't want to say something like you just you just trust that you can respond to that whether it's just like oh is it or oh I have an umbrella or oh maybe I won't go for a walk or whatever you know so you're trying to bring people you're trying to let people get people to get rid of that kind of pressure that we put in ourselves to say the right thing and get really comfortable in that space of like you can't be wrong it's made up so you can't be wrong there's nobody following a script and if you trust yourself then like 99.9 percent of the time if not 100 percent of the time you'll respond even if the response is just eh, it's still a response you know yeah brilliant i think we can all take something from that and bring it into our own lives um we better talk about the curse of the button accordion and one thing i'm dying to know is how autobiographical was that piece um, tell tell people a little, little bit about it first and then go on okay, to so how, how the idea was planted in your yeah, head and okay. how it got to stage. So The Curse of the Button Accordion was a one-woman show that I toured um, around the place and then it was a radio play as well and we were supposed to be going to America actually touring it last April which of course didn't happen but anyway hopefully that will happen again. So it was a show, yeah, one-woman show, uh, comedy about me growing up in Roscommon and my experiences of 
learning to play the button accordion and how the button accordion basically cursed me and cursed my life forevermore amen and in terms of how autobiographical it was i would say shamefully and embarrassingly it was quite it was quite <laughs> autobiographical uh, it was definitely heightened you know for sure it was heightened and there was some elements in there that that didn't happen but it was very much based on truth very much based on truth and um i did play the button accordion i did have this horrendous relationship with the button accordion where i did believe that the button accordion was kind of out to get me or that like it was working against me kind of thing uh so yeah it absolutely came from truth um where i got the idea was kind of just one of those things that was kind of lurking in my mind really for a long time i don't ever remember kind of going hey i know i'll do a show about that it just kind of yeah i don't know i think it was probably i like you know the way you'd have bits of writing on your laptop kind of thing and i just kind of ended up writing i think uh, bits about kind of that time in my life maybe you know when i was kind of 10 or 11 or whatever and yeah i just kind of went with it and and just i don't actually it's funny like i don't actually remember deciding to write a show um i just kind of did it just kind of became a thing yeah but it was interesting like from writing it like i totally looked back on myself and was like jesus christ <laughs> you know just i was i was really anxious child and just worrying about the end of the world and all this stuff like the director matt is this was this um well is he's still he's still alive uh this laid-back australian and like every now and again he'd be like ah oh, straight sharon well, I, what the hell was wrong with you when you were a kid why were you worried about this crap and i'm like i don't know i, I thought everybody was worrying about nostradamus and the third secret of fatima i, I just thought that's what everybody was at but it turns out it was just me. So, yeah. I uh, know. I think a lot of people shared those anxieties as a child. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, it's coming back to me now because I, I saw Curse of the Button Accordion a few years ago now. And it was very relatable. Maybe because I went to the same feckin' primary school and everything as you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was all about growing up in this in this village. But yeah. Mm. Um, no, th- those anxieties about that they that uh, manifest after all that religious stuff that they teach mm. you and the you know seeing Mary yeah. in the sky and all that it was terrifying to uh, absorb all that as a child. Um, what was it like having your own work directed by someone else? Oh, that's a good question. Um, do you know if I'm really honest, I maybe struggled with that at times. You know, um. And Matt, who directed it, is a good friend of mine before and since anyway. So we had a good relationship and a good work beforehand and we had a good working relationship and I trusted him and all of that. So there was no issue with um, with him. But yeah, I probably did. Like when you come from doing stand up particularly because stand up is like, you know, you have the ultimate ownership over it. You know, you write it, you direct it, you decide what you're going to wear, you decide how you're going to say it, etc, etc. So it's all on you. And yeah, when you move to do some, when I moved to do something like The Curse, then it was kind of, it was a play, like, you know, and I kind of, and I hadn't, I'm not mad on doing plays, if I'm honest. Uh, And it was a while since I'd done a play, really. Uh, So this was this weird hybrid of like, it was a play but at the same time I did write it so I had strong opinions on you know what it should be and what I wanted it to be but I also had I needed a director I mean obviously I couldn't direct it myself or whatever and you need that outside eye and you need somebody to say well that's not working or you know you need to cut that bit out or we don't need that bit etc etc so yeah I think at times I probably um I think I got there in the end and I think it was fine but yeah it's definitely like there is that thing in the rehearsal room where I suppose you you know when you're cast in a play say written by somebody else and directed by somebody else like you know your role you're the actor you can have opinions and you can absolutely give opinions but at the end of the day uh the director says what's what and you go and you do what you're told kind of thing uh and so if we if and when we hit on moments where maybe 
we disagreed about what might come next or whatever like I probably had to let go a bit and kind of remind myself that you know he was the director and I was not kind of thing so you're sort of wearing two hats because you're the actor responding to the text but you're also responsible for the text so you're kind of you're trying to make things work as the actor but then you're sort of you're also kind of going well if it's really not working then I might need to rewrite it and yeah so it's a bit you're kind of spinning plates a little bit but um yeah it's a good question it's kind of tricky and I think the key is to that you're working with somebody that you really trust you know and that you know is not going to steer you too far off course kind of thing and the there's a there's a lovely moment at the end of the play and it's almost a bit um the play is very light-hearted and hilarious and animated and then there's this gorgeous moment at the end that's almost uh it's very deep and it all it called it was like a hold your breath kind of moment and i'm just but it was quite you know it was its own thing and you wouldn't call it a well you know it's it's obviously a very deep play it touches on a lot of very personal stuff for you but it's a laugh you know Mm. but is it important to you to have those moments of genuine um genuineness i suppose you know hold your breath moments i think so and that's probably something that matt was really um integral integral that's not the right way I'm saying that word is it I don't know forget I I said it uh important he was really important um he really pushed that side for me because um left to my own devices it might have just been stand-up you know and he would kind of keep reminding me that it wasn't stand-up and that it wasn't just an hour and 20 minutes of joke 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 because it just wouldn't even in a stand-up set over that time you'd have to have some moments of kind of you know there's a bit of a up and down nature to it but certainly in a play like he was really he really helped me with that 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 was important um so I have to kind of credit him for yeah reminding me to allow those moments to exist because I think I definitely I mean I'm the classic case of like um you know like well yeah again it's okay so again it's that thing where if i was if if i hadn't written the piece i or any piece i would you know happily allow all the dramatic moments to exist and i would totally feel comfortable in you know coming at it as an actor and finding the places where there is pauses and there is kind of not it's not laughing it's whatever but because I had written it, the moments where people weren't laughing touched a kind of a, a nerve, I think, maybe, as a stand-up. That I'm so used to, like, chasing for the laugh that I had to really kind of force myself to, yeah, allow those moments to exist. And I think they are really important. And probably I see it now even more so, having done the show. Like Because if you don't have that kind of heart, then, like you know it's it's kind of nothing then it's kind of it just kind of is a bit of fluff i suppose and and that's fine for a certain amount of time but over kind of an hour and 20 minutes you know once you you could you can feel it like once you get sort of 15 20 minutes in that peep that the audience are ready for a sort of a, a gear shift you know and then you can kind of bring it back up again and then sort of but you have to allow that to happen because if you just kind of go for the whole thing, I think you'll lose people, you know? Yeah. And you you are a writer. So like how how else have you approached other works and where do your ideas come from? Yeah, so it's interesting. I suppose, again, I I mean, a lot of the time, like with some of the writing, like it'll just be a case, like I wrote a show for RTE 2 recently called Blast from the Past, which was a historical sketch show. And like that was just uh, the production company asked me to do it or whatever. So sometimes you're just getting gigs where, and there was other writers as well. There's another three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Yes, there was four of us. And Mark and Hugh. Oh my God, there was more of us. There was, uh, yeah, six of us. I'm terrified they'll listen to this and be screaming, going, ah, I was on that. Anyway, there was a few of us. 
so that was an example of something that I was just brought on to. So it's not my idea. Uh, I'm just writing on it. And, that, and I love that. I actually really enjoy that as well. You know, it's really nice to kind of, uh, I guess, not have responsibility for the overall idea and just be like, sure, I can write some historical uh, comedy or whatever. So that's what happens sometimes. Then sometimes I've written some, like in the pandemic, then uh, Radio 1 asked me to write a pandemic kind of specific piece, a short radio play, which was about 10 or 12 minutes or something or 15 minutes. So that was, again, I mean, I had the freedom within that to write about whatever I wanted, but it was kind of to touch on themes uh, around the pandemic. So that sort of sets your brain going that way. So... Yeah, and then, but as regard, like, it's funny. I think, I feel like you're in a constant state of, you have your own couple of things that you're working away on, you know, whether it's a, like, I have a radio play I'm, I've been trying to finish for the last few months and I have, I got some arts council funding to write a show, so I'm kind of working on that. And But then you get sidetracked by, there's a commissioning round has opened up and they're looking for ideas based around whatever. So you kind of work on something for that or you know there's another scheme opens up here and you kind of go okay I could try and do that or somebody rings and go oh we need a short I did a radio essay recently about a thing and so you're kind of in this constant state of working on nurturing your own little ideas here in the corner and then fitting a brief you know whether it's for some paid work or for some kind of pitching thing so yeah it's sometimes like I think it's hard to work on your own stuff like it's hard in a way like the glorious time is like before like say for example in a stand-up context but I think this works in a kind of a career context as well that like before you do your first stand-up gig the world is your oyster in terms of like what you might write about what you might talk about like you have just this huge reservoir of potential and opportunity to do whatever it is you want and then as soon as you do that first gig you're sort of on the hamster wheel a little bit so you're kind of it's hard to get back to that just like hey you know what do I want to do with my life kind of thing and and I think that's similar in a career context and in a writing context as well you know before you do anything you kind of you can do whatever you want and then once you get into the sort of the work of it you're sort of constantly doing a little bit of this and then a little bit of this and then this has been distracted so you better go back to that and then you spend a bit of time on that and then you have to take this corporate gig because you need to pay the mortgage or whatever so um it's not always easy to to tap into like hey what do I want to write about you know um and then sometimes I think you have to just go with an energy that you know, sometimes you end up working on some pitch for something and you might, the pitch might not come through. In fact, that's what happened with the radio play. I pitched it for something and they didn't go for it. But I actually went, and you know what? I actually think I really want to write this. So um, I'm, I'm working away on that and I'll try and try and sell it then <laughs> once I've finished it. <laughs> that's all. I love everything that you said there. I find personally what's challenging about, you know, listening to your own instincts about what you want to do and going out and doing it is that actually getting the support and maybe it's because I've graduated into the pandemic or maybe I I need a few more months to learn how to do things but I find teaming up with other people who you know know what they're doing is a way to find your your theatre or club or your theatre company and finding your script and finding your director and finding your funding as well do you know like I yeah. just find that process of having your idea and having your energy and then actually creating the work I just yeah. think it's idea question mark question mark question mark the work do you know oh yeah and even uh, then during the work it's like question mark question mark after the work question mark question mark like it's just question mark question mark all the time you know do you think uh, it's just like, a thing of getting comfortable with getting comfortable absolutely like even you asking me questions about the curse there and I'm like what do I think about the curse like do you know what I mean and that's an established piece that I've done numerous times but I still am question mark question mark question mark you know so <laughs> it is it absolutely is but I totally I totally agree with what you're saying there about like finding the people that you want to be around and that you need to be around and I think there's a certain amount of just 
you know, just allowing that to happen naturally. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Like I would, in you know, even that would trigger in my mind like a few people over the years that I would be really kind of drawn to in a in a certain kind of like that oh I want to do something with that person I don't know what it is and and in in some ways it's like there's numerous examples of where that has turned into really successful kind of groups or pieces or gigs or whatever but there's also plenty of examples of where that hasn't worked and has never led to anything and you know that but that's okay too like do you know what I mean I think you still have to kind of um go with those feelings and go with if you like being around somebody and you feel like you you know collaborate well even if you don't really know what that is then like it could because it could be years later that something some avenue sort of manifests itself that you kind of go oh we could do that or whatever you know so I think you have to you like um, Neve Shaw is a is one of my good friends and she's a a space enthusiast in that she's trying to be the first artist in residence on the International Space Station. So that's yeah. her kind of goal, you know. And we now we did improv years ago and stuff, but she's definitely, uh, she used to be an actor and she's not now, she's following the kind of sciencey space stuff. But like she's definitely somebody that we know we want to work together again, you know. Mm-hmm. And we have pitched, actually in recent times, we have pitched some stuff that is a kind of a science comedy hybrid you know so you know I think like yeah sometimes like I don't know what me and Neve will end up doing together because she's trying to get to space and I'm trying to do comedy I don't know but I know that we will be doing something you know so I think you have to yeah you absolutely have to follow those kind of um that good feeling I guess yeah Mm. That's amazing. I'm very excited to see some sci-fi theatre or stand-up or whatever you make. Um, Sharon, t- that was a lovely chat. That was really insightful. Thank I feel you. like I learned so much from chatting to you. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> so just to just to wrap things up, I suppose, where where's the best place for people to find you and where can people um, see your work? So, I mean, obviously we are in a pandemic. So. Who knows when we will be back to the real world again. I am working on a show that I have uh, got some funding to do. I'm really hoping to uh, that that will appear in the real world uh, sometime in 2022. I kind of forget what year we are. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. Uh, Zoomy Mondays. Mondays on Zoom we're doing and plan on keep doing uh, for the foreseeable. I and guess that's with on Dublin comedy. That's improv. with Dublin comedy improv. Yeah, I guess my Twitter account is probably where uh, you find out what I'm up to. So at Sharon Mannion two, I think is what I'm called there. Uh, yeah. So everything obviously is up in the air at the moment, but there's a few bits and pieces. And Blast from the Past, which is the uh, show for RT two, that's coming back. Uh, so so that should be on our screens, maybe this year, but definitely next year. Brilliant. Fabulous. Okay, well, thank you, so, thank you much. so much for everything. You were a star. No and no all worries. the best for the future. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Infernus Inquire Riscommon Artists. You heard there from actor, writer, and stand up comedian Sharon Mannion. You can see Sharon's Oh, I Sound Like an RTE presenter. Tuning in live with Sharon Mannion. Oh God, Misha, stop. <clears throat> Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Infernus Inquire Riscommon Artists. You just heard there from actor, writer and stand-up comedian Sharon Mannion. You can see Sharon's work. I sound like, I sound like I'm presenting nationwide. I really do. Okay, we'll go again. Sharon Mannion. Sharon Mannion. I should do her like she's like a wrestling um. Sharon Mannion! No, Misha, stop. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll go again. It's okay. Whew. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of In Fairness Inquire, Riscommon Artists. You just heard from actor, writer and stand-up comedian Sharon Mannion. You can see Sharon's work on Mondays on Zoom with Dublin Comedy Improv. You can find them on Facebook or find her Twitter at Sharon Mannion too, where she posts most often about her work. Blasts from the past is to come back in 2022, so keep an eye out for that. You can find our podcast, In Fairness, on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. Make sure to tune in next week when we hear from Michael Harding. 
You can hear more from us and our interviewees on Instagram at InFairnessPod, same on Twitter and InFairnessPodcast on Facebook. Feel free to get in touch with us. And once again, if you'd enjoyed this interview, please feel free to share it, let your friends know. It really, really helps us out. Thank you again to Roscommon County Council for their support in helping us create this series and to our wonderful mentor, Catherine Sheridan. You've been listening to In Fairness Inquire, Roscommon Artists. Research, questions and producing by Molly Mew. Sound engineering, editing and producing by Misha Fitzgibbon. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next week. Thank you.